Well, hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to a new show. I'm Pete, and uh, you're your listener. And uh, today, we have an introduction to a little something I like to call Potawin. I like to call it that because that's what it's called. Um, so this year's Potawin uh, was originally going to be something that I've named Hoaxaween. And what that is, is um, last year I spent the time following up a bunch of urban legends, local ghost stories, shit like that. And uh, the end result of that was sort of uh, that I ended up feeling like I was like a weird debunker or something and that I had just ruined everything. So I decided uh, this year I would do some hoaxes. But then I ran into a problem with that. The problem with that is that um, how, do you, how do you do hoaxes that are only exist for like an hour before then somebody's on a podcast saying, I did that hoax. It kind of ruins the hoax, right? So I figured what I really need to do is do the hoaxes way, way in advance and then follow up like in a year. Because at that point, either they'll have been found and, uh, you know, the legend will have begun. They won't have been found. And, uh, you know, whatever, we'll continue on in obscurity, as we always have. Or, uh, you know, there will be some sort of follow-up to it. I The point being, I think in order to do what I wanted to do, which is bring a little bit more spookiness into the daily life that I removed from people here, I can't then just immediately go on a podcast and describe it, right? So here's what's going to happen for Potoween this year. I found a series of tapes. Um, they were recorded by a fellow writer, not so unlike myself, in the year 1996. And uh, this writer was hired to do a specific job. Um, and uh, basically kept an audio diary of uh, what he was doing. And, you know, his the job he was asked to do is horror adjacent this all works um one thing you'll notice right away is that the author who made these tapes sounds a lot like me now this is because he does sound kind of a lot like me but also i had to do a lot of processing to try and make them sound not shitty because uh, they're on cassette tape and i didn't i didn't want them to sound as horrible as they just did uh, naturally or whatever, because, you know, that's not really listenable, right? So I did a lot of work, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not an expert audio engineer, so the best thing I could really do was sort of try and match his voice to my own, and uh, thereby sort of create a situation where um, it sounds pretty good, I think. You, you wouldn't know, it's not like you're going to struggle to listen to it this way. Um, I guess this is also perhaps a look into my own psyche and the possibility that I think my own uh, voice is perfect. And so making other voices sound like mine is, you know, the height of excellence. So, you know, it could this could also be a look into my psychology, <laughs> whatever. Um, I'll have intro and probably sometimes outro music, so you'll hear that as well. But the rest of these tapes are as originally recorded. Um so, you know, I'm going to save the, the name of the specific project 
for a little bit down. You you heard the intro music. That's kind of a little clue into what it's going to be. Um, but it, you'll you'll hear the uh, the actual name of it soon enough, and uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, I I think this is this is a little bit of a departure this year, but uh, I hope that you all enjoy it. If you don't, um, I'll see you in November. All right, see you tomorrow. Greetings. Uh, if you're listening to this recording, welcome. Uh, my name is Parker Peterson. Um, you may know me by my uh, pen name, which is uh, Werther Delight Jones. Uh, usually I go by Werther D. Jones. The D stands for Delight. That was my grandmother's middle name. And I uh, thought it was unusual and not descriptive of her. Uh, if you ever met her, I think that would be it's almost like her parents named her that because that's the absolute last way anyone would describe her. Anyway, uh, if you know my name, it's probably because you read novelizations of movies. So, you know, I, I graduated, I got a master's in fine arts and uh, have, have been working in literary fiction ever since. So, you know, that's another name for, or another reason for the pen name because uh, everybody told me Listen, you don't want to do your, your literary short stories and your novelizations of critters under the same name. Um, but, you know, this is, this is how the bills get paid. I've, I've become enough of a realist to uh, sort of go full, full headlong into the world of movie novelizations. And um, I've, I've made a little name for myself, but I have to say it's frustrating because I keep losing all these big jobs to Alan goddamn Dean Foster. He is my professional rival. Uh, I have no reason to think he knows who I am. But uh, trust me, I know who he is. Um, you know, and the way it works, he gets Alien. And Aliens. And Alien 3. And I get Critters. Critters 2. And Critters 3. So, you know, we're, we're like in the same ballpark, but uh, I, I've been losing out to him my entire career. And, you know, when you're losing out to someone in the novelization realm, it, it's a tough pill to swallow. Now, my biggest success or my best my best work, if you would like to seek it out, is uh, in the novelization realm is probably what I did with Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Um, I added a lot of backstory about the clown's home planet and, you know, some of the things they face there. Um, you know, some more backstory that kind of explains why an entire alien race would evolve to uh, appear and act and sort of their aesthetic would all be like uh, earthen clowns. So if, if you want to kind of get a sample of that, that's where I would begin. Uh, anyway... I've always been an Alan Dean Foster shadow, uh, but then I, I got to do, I got the chance to do a big project. 
I just got pitched this product, okay? And I don't know exactly what it is yet. I'm supposed to go for a meeting tomorrow, um, but I'm told that it's going to involve uh, basically taking a novel and turning it into a novelization from which, which will basically be used as the shooting script for a big movie. So kind of backwards of what I normally do. Um, and, the, I, you know, I've heard a lot of rumors about young, hot actors being in the movie. So, you know, like right around this time, we're talking about uh, Leonardo DiCaprio being in something Shakespeare. That's kind of the rumor mill that's circulating right now. So I think I think that we're headed for something kind of similar to that. And uh, my book is going to end up sort of being the glue that holds this whole project together. It's kind of going to be the first version of whatever this is. Um, and then it'll go into the, into the movie and it'll be adapted from the novel by me. Um, and you know, so that cha-ching, first of all, cha-ching, um, it feels like a payday. Okay. And I, I'm I'm excited about it because I feel like things are really turning around. That's what brought me to uh, to why I'm recording these tapes. Okay, I I went out and got this tape recorder, and I'm recording these tapes because someday uh, when I'm a famous author and you know it's it's time to write my memoir, I want to have like a record of what I was thinking and what I was feeling at this point. You know, most people don't have that a clear record of their thoughts from the time when everything changed. Right. Every creative has their moment. They went to bed last night a nobody, and that was the last night they went to bed a nobody who didn't have a dream. And uh, the next day, everything changed for them. So I have my first meeting tomorrow, and I think that's when everything is going to change for me. So I'm, I'm about to go to bed. I'm recording this in my bedroom, which is all the rooms because, you know, I live in a studio apartment because I write novelizations for a living. Um, but I think this is the last, the last night that I'm a guy who goes to bed in a studio apartment without a, without a dream. I think tomorrow I wake up and uh, I'm a new man. So I'm going to keep these tapes and uh, keep track of my process and thoughts along the way so that uh, when I do go to write that memoir, I, I have it all down. I guess I could have just uh, written this down in a journal. It would make more sense as a writer. Cut that part out. Hey, uh, tape recorder. Um, you'll have to excuse me. I am mildly inebriated. Um, I had I had my meeting. So uh, it was my first meeting today with the boss, Mister Sanborn, and uh, he's a cynical bastard. Let me tell you that. In the in the novelization world, you meet some pretty cynical people. 
Uh, they don't exactly, there's not exactly a lot of call for, you know, increasing the art of the novelization. <laughs> but uh, this guy was even on another level. First thing I get there, and uh, I'm in his office, and uh, I was kind of expecting to be in a high rise, and uh, I was in a high rise, but, you know, when you're on the in the high rise, but you're on floor four, it does it really matter that you're in a high rise? But, you know, maybe it does. I'm trying to be positive about this project, so maybe when you're on the fourth floor of the high rise, you're at the base. You're what makes it keep going. Maybe that's why Mr. Sanborn's on the fourth floor. Because he keeps the wheels turning. So first thing, he pours me a, a drink. And he pours one for himself. And uh, he hands me this drink. And I, that's when I realized the glass was like way bigger than a normal glass. And uh, he poured me enough of a drink to flatten me for the whole day. Maybe part of tomorrow too. And uh, so he gives me this drink, and it's weighing down my arm. It's that heavy, and it's the glass is sweating. I'm afraid I'm going to drop it. And he says, Jimmy, he says, even though my name is not Jimmy, uh, it's Parker or Werther, nothing like Jimmy. But he says, Jimmy, I'm going to be on the level with you. This is not something I care about. It's something I have to do. Turns out... Mr. Sanborn had a DUI, couple DUIs, uh, uh, several DUIs, and a recent another DUI. I guess that shouldn't be a huge surprise, considering this drink he gave me. This one drink was bigger. If you take the second largest drink I've been poured up, take the largest I'd been poured at, at that point in my life, and take the second largest. Combine those two drinks, it's still smaller than this one drink um so mr sanborn told me that as a condition for keeping his driver's license he worked out a deal and he'd use his power as a publisher to put out something to benefit urban youth and that's how he said it a lot urban youth and you know he kept saying it or he would say urban students and so finally he's like urban students and he said it two or three times to me and then he looks at me and he's like, do you know what that means? And I said, I think I do know what you mean when you're saying urban youth. And he said anyway that it means students who are black or possibly uh, brown. And uh, he told me that like 10 times. He kept saying urban youth and then telling me that that meant black kids. I don't understand why he kept telling me. He kept using the word urban to describe them, but then clarifying. So it kind of defeats the point of this euphemistic urban thing. But whatever. That's not the important thing. I did. That is why I started drinking, though, because when he clarified urban for me probably the third time, I felt like I needed it. So Mr. Sanborn is saying, you know, that uh, at this publisher, they're always like pumping out these recovered classics, right? They'll take Moby Dick and they'll put like a fancy cover on it and they'll make gild the edges in gold leaf and stuff. And, you know, you got a free book so you don't have some annoying author you have to pay. That was another time for me to drink because I was the annoying author that he was talking about. 
So he said that what we were going to do is something like that. We're going to take a, an old classic, jazz it up. He said maybe put some MTV stuff in there or something. Um, but I knew, I knew what he meant. We needed to, to revive a classic for the modern era, for the modern student. And, you know, I, I was excited about this because I have to say, you know, I do care about the plight of literacy in the youth. And if maybe if this helps them uh, do better in school and go to college, that seems like a, a great thing to do. I don't know how many kids are going to college because of my novelization of Critters 2. But if uh, there are kids who did that and they're in your class, I'm very sorry. So I was hoping Mr. Sanborn would say Frankenstein or Dracula. Dracula would have been a home run, right? The book's been interpreted like a hundred times as uh, like a race thing. A guy who's a little different moves into the neighborhood. Cops come and stake him in the heart. That works out perfectly. That You can modernize that, no problem. Unfortunately, it turns out people are still kind of assholes. Uh, Mr. Sanborn had his whole drink. And uh, he was looking at his empty glass, and he was saying that while he was sitting in court, it hit him. And that's when he knew what he wanted to make. And he turned and looked at me and said, Phantom of the Hip Hopra. Now, this was a moment of panic for me. I haven't read Phantom of the Opera. My only experience with Phantom of the Opera is that I hung this poster in my dorm room in college. I was trying to impress this girl who was into musical theater and stuff. Did I impress her? That's the cliffhanger from this tape. I'm too loaded to make this not be the cliffhanger. Oh my god. Okay. All right. I have a headache, but I'm back. So when we left off, I think uh, Mr. Sanborn asked if I knew about Phantom of the Opera. And uh, I said, know it. I had a poster on the wall in my dorm room, which wasn't a lie exactly. I mean, I, I did hang a Phantom of the Opera poster in my room to impress a girl. That's right. That's where we left off last time. Uh, I hung a Phantom of the Opera poster in my dorm room to impress a girl, and that was the entirety of my experience with Phantom of the Opera. And I was going to tell you whether or not uh, my Phantom of the Opera ploy worked. Uh, the answer is it did not. But I am still I'm optimistic about Phantom, not about it working out with that girl. I mean... I don't think it was Phantom of the Opera's fault that I did not impress a girl. If, if it was Phantom of the Opera's fault every time I didn't impress a girl, Phantom of the Opera would have a lot to answer for. You know, really, as an unimpressive person, let me give an advice to other unimpressive people. When you're an unimpressive person and you try to impress someone, 
it mostly just highlights how unimpressive you are. So, uh, you know, maybe just don't try, I guess is the answer. Wow. So anyway, Mr. Sanborn gives me Phantom of the Hip Hopra and says, what do you think? I think it's a slam dunk. And, you know, I've been enough of these kind of meetings to say, oh, for sure. And, you know, I said, uh, I think there are plenty of ways we can we can make this story work. I think there are a lot of great ways to, I said, urbanize the story. And, you know, he looked at me after I said urbanize. And then I winked and he seemed happy. He didn't force me to say what urban meant when he kept saying it to me. So uh, that seemed to satisfy him. He didn't quiz me on Phantom of the Opera. Uh, I don't know whether he knows anything about Phantom of the Opera either. It seems entirely possible that he doesn't, which would be probably for the best. But he didn't ask me about it then. And he just told me, uh, okay, well, I gotta, I gotta get this out in about a year. And so, you know, at that point, I'd, I'd had a lot of that drink, which I deeply regret at this point. Um, and, you know, I kind of leaned back and I was like, oh my God, a year, that's way longer than, than I normally have. Um, normally with these, uh, novelizations, you have a pretty quick turnaround because, you know, here's how it goes. You work off the shooting script, right? Sometimes you have a little bit of casting in there too, or they'll say like, just leave some blank space and then we'll do the casting so you can describe the characters last so that you're describing the people who are in the movie. But you kind of crank it out as fast as you can so you can bind it, list it, sell it, get it in the grocery stores, all that shit, a couple months before the movie comes out. You know, that way you get some people who will buy the book so they can read it before the movie comes out. Not sure what that's about. And then you'll also get the people who go to the movie theater. And then, you know, in that six-month wait between coming out on video or DVD or what have you, it's, if you're a fancy person with a DVD player, uh, you can you can get a second round sometimes. You can get a second round in on people. So So a year is much faster or much slower than I'm used to. But then the publisher said, you don't understand. I need this book on the shelves before the end of this year. Uh, so I need it from you by the end of October. Uh, this meeting was yesterday, which was October 3rd. Today is October 4th. I still have no idea what happens in Phantom of the Opera. And I have a meeting with a board tomorrow uh, where I'm supposed to sort of have the details and some basic pitches and some stuff in order this is going to be a rough one folks Well, hey, everyone. Uh, this is another tape of mine. Uh, it's, it's October 5th. And uh, this morning I've got, I've got a meeting with the publishing board to talk about Phantom of the Hip Hopera uh, and all, of, all that that entails. So I'm supposed to give them 
my understanding is I'm supposed to give them kind of a, a quick rundown on what I'm doing. And I'm a little nervous, which is mostly my fault, uh, which is mostly because I do not know what the hell to do with this thing. So I, I, I read about a third of the book, um, but I don't really remember most of it. Unfortunately, I chose to read the first part when I was still inebriated after my first meeting. And I read the second part that I've read uh, when I was severely hungover. So my combined uh, review of that, I wrote some notes down. Let me see. Uh, French. Oh, sorry. So French, so stupid. That's all the notes that I have. Um, as far as I can tell, there's basically a guy who people think is a ghost but I'm like 99% sure he's a guy and not a ghost. There's some kind of tacked on love story that makes no sense. Um, but I guess that's okay because like I would have had to put a love story in here anyway, no matter what. Right. So if I've got to cover like this big, this big plot hole, or if I'm going to have, you know, if I'm going to end up with a manuscript that has like a big plot hole, cause the love story makes sense. I mean, I might as well just let Gaston LaRue hammer the nails into that plywood. Know what I mean? But after that, I didn't really know, you know, based on these notes and whatever. So I didn't know what else to do. Um, so I went and I, I bought a new computer. And I figured it might help me write better. Plus, I was on the street yesterday and saw these new gateway computer stores that opened. And they're like farm themed. I mean, how weird is that? They have like pictures of wheat and stuff and it's called gateway country. And, you know, I guess it takes the, the country part very seriously. Um, I don't know what any of that has to do with computers. But then I also thought maybe it's brilliant marketing because if you make a technology store that's completely anti-technology, um, they must have great technology. Right? That's the only that's the only scenario I can come up with that makes any sense. So I spent most of this morning setting up the computer. Um, figuring out how that works. It's got a CD-ROM drive. And uh, unfortunately, all, <laughs> all I have for the board today is I did do a few chapters. Um, I typed up a few chapters. And what I did is I just copied the first section from the book. And I use this, the software on it has this find and replace thing, right? So if I type in a name, let's say, I can replace it with something else and it'll just automatically do it. It's great. So what I did is had the find and replace uh, go to all the spots where it says Monsieur and Mademoiselle and replace it with Lil, L-I-L apostrophe, um, to sort of make at least some change to the story and I figured that would make it sound less French and more urban. Does French have an urban area? That's French. Paris? Is that like, is this like a common euphemism or is this like just an American thing? Anyway, um, at this point, that's the entirety of what I've done to take Phantom of the Opera and make it Phantom of the Hip-Hopera. 
and uh, I'm about to walk out the door to this meeting, so uh, wish me luck. Greetings, uh, me and whoever else may be listening to this in the future. Uh, well, I had my, my board meeting today. That went poorly um, in, a, in a few different ways. First of all, they didn't seem to like my uh, early outline very much. Uh, so that's a bad sign. But on the good sign side, they didn't seem to dislike it. Um and really, if I'm talking good sign, bad sign, what I really should do is say uh, them not liking it and them not disliking it is probably just a sign that they didn't read it, which is uh, at this point I'm taking as a good thing. Because uh, if they had read it at this point, I don't know what they would have gotten out of it, but it would not have reflected uh, well on me. That's for damn sure. So Rand, Rand Sanborn, the, the guy in charge, he wasn't there, uh, but the board did seem pretty relaxed about the whole project, I have to say. So I started getting the impression that, uh, you know, Rand is doing this for his DUI thing and the rest of everyone is just sort of tolerating this. Like, a, I, I got the impression that this is probably not Rand Sanborn's first rodeo of bringing up thing into the workplace just for his own personal benefit. I don't know if that's uh, fair or true, but uh, this is just a tape, right? It's not going to be like broadcast to the entire world through some kind of technology later, so I've, it's fine to say it, right? Um, they did have like some, some more stringent demands for the book, um, some specifics that Rand didn't tell me about. Um, they want. They said they wanted some term terminology in the book, some sort of uh, hip hop terminology uh, that they said they they would follow up later on that. So I don't know exactly what they want. I think I'm pretty uh, versed in uh, street terminology, but you know we'll we'll see what they want. Um, they the harder part was they asked me about the songs in the book. Which, uh, up to this point, I didn't know were a thing. I, you know, I'm not like a big a big fan of songs in books. Uh, Lord of the Rings are probably the classic, right? But the problem with a song in a book is you either have to sort of break the text and say, you know, this is to the tune of this other thing, or you have to uh, just... It's a tuneless song, so it's kind of a... What's the point? You know what I mean? Like, what is a song without a rhythm and a beat and a, a sound? But uh, I, I, think, I think that it shouldn't be too bad. I, I just decided to play smart on this one instead of dumb. And, you know, I said, usually in a project like this, the songs come last um, so they can reference what happened and what, what is a, going to happen in the story. So, you know, it's common when you're doing a novelization of something like this to do the songs last. And uh, they seem to buy it. 
So I did start to feel a little more relaxed in the meeting. Like I sort of knew what I was doing, but then I kind of actually thought about it more and felt less relaxed because it started to feel like I knew what I was doing more than anyone else on the project. And I don't know anything. And if I know nothing and I know the most, I don't know how this is going to turn out. But uh, I think what I'll probably do is just set it to the tune. I'll just put in the text that it's to the tune of, you know, some current uh, popular music. Because I don't think that will bother the intended audience at all. I don't think breaking that fourth wall that way uh, is going to be a big problem. Um, I did share, I brought a short summary uh, kind of like the the summary I was picturing for the back of the book. Um, so it goes like this. Um, and I'm spelling phantom, F-A-N-T-O-M, you know, to change it up a little bit. The phantom is in the house. The opera house, that is. Phantom was the greatest rapper of the early 80s. But after he was injured by blowing up a microphone in his own face with sick rhymes, scarring his face... He's been a ghost of sorts on the rap scene. After several sightings of a ghostly nature, everybody's asking, is it Phantom? Is he back? The board didn't say much about the intro. Um, again, I don't think they were really listening. Um, but they did give me a little bit of info. They told me to describe Phantom as a Tupac-like figure. Um... That got me pretty pumped, I'm going to be honest, because if we're talking about a movie and we're talking hip-hop, what better choice for the lead role than Tupac? I mean, I could see the reviews already. Tupac, five stars. I wonder if his people ever use something like that. I should write them a letter. Today's October 7th, and uh, I just returned from a trip to the bookstore to get a bunch of Phantom of the Opera stuff. Um, there was a, a very cute girl working at the register, and I took my second shot at trying to uh, impress a girl with uh, using the vehicle of Phantom of the Opera. You know, some people, some people buy a Corvette, and make that their personality. Some guys walk through the park with like a snake draped around their shoulders. And uh, I guess, I don't know if I have my thing yet. And doing the novelization of Critters 2 hasn't pulled me a lot of action. So I did, I did decide to give Phantom another shot. Many years after my failed debacle with the uh, dorm room poster. So I got up to the checkout and I pointed... <laughs> pointed out the cover of one of the copies of Phantom that I got. I got a new copy that's like based on the stage play because it's supposed to have some stage directions and songs in it. So I figure that way I can have an easier time. Um, I was going to use the term ripping off, but let's say adapting that stuff for this movie. 
should make my life quite a bit easier. You know, they say great artists uh, steal. And I consider myself a pretty good artist, so I borrow. Anyway, um, I pointed that one out and I was saying, you know, uh, I'm rewriting this uh, for a major publisher. And uh, I got to say, she lit up a little bit. Now, unfortunately, right after that, um, she scanned that book and underneath was Cliff Notes for Phantom of the Opera. And uh, her the amount she was impressed dropped significantly from there forward. Um, but, you know, I, I wasn't ready to give up. I was like, oh, this is just a minor setback, right? And uh, I probably shouldn't have gone this route, but I told her how I was in charge of giving Phantom a bit of a more urban vibe. And I did, unfortunately, because of my conversations with Mr. Sanborn, uh, I've just gotten in the habit of saying a more urban vibe and sort of saying it with that tone of like, do you know what I mean? And I did look at her for a second after I said urban. And I guess I was trying to figure out if she knows what urban means in the publishing world, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's possible that she has no idea. It's also possible that she is a horrid racist. Let's go with that. But anyway, it didn't. that didn't work either. And I probably should have given up at that point. Um, and I also sort of forgot that underneath the Cliff's Notes, uh, I picked up a, bo- a book that's called Yo Teach. It's a Y-O exclamation point, teach exclamation point. It's a full of slang used by urban youth. And I figured it would help me put the right, you know, flavor into the book. Uh, flavor being a word I learned from Yo Teach. So anyway, when the checkout girl saw that one, she was even less impressed. Uh, so by my math, she went from not impressed at all to minus impressed, negative impressed. I don't know how to express that as an equation. I didn't do math. That's why I'm a writer. But however much the baseline is for zero, she was below that. So even if I had done something very impressive at that point, it would have brought me up to just unimpressed. The slang book was probably also why when I asked if she wanted to have coffee with me, uh, she asked how old I was, which startled me because then I said, wait, how old are you? Because I had thought you had to be 18 to work in the city. Turns out you can work in the bookstore if you're 16. At that point, I was just glad I'm not remaking fucking Lolita because I'd probably be recording this in a jail cell right now. Um, But I did walk away a free man. And I got a bunch of Phantom of the Opera books, but, uh, you know, minus some dignity. So, not an unusual transaction for old Werther here. And uh, I guess that makes strike two for Phantom. Sorry to Gaston LaRue. You know, your book just doesn't impress the ladies. I don't know if it impressed the ladies in his day. Maybe it did. But uh, your, your modern woman just doesn't seem to be enchanted by uh, Phantom of the Opera in any capacity or on any level.
All right, it's October 8th, and uh, I'm feeling good. When I say effervescent, maybe, if I was uh, the overrider Gaston LaRue, but uh, I am not. So I would say I'm feeling fly. Um, the good news here, and I think what's got me feeling so good, is the Cliff's Notes thing is helping a lot. I wish I had known about these in high school. Um, it would have made it way easier to get through high school. I wonder who writes these. I wonder if I could get a gig writing Cliff's Notes. I mean, like, a novelization for a movie is kind of reverse Cliff's Notes, I guess. You're taking a, a bare-bones thing and expanding it. So I think I'd be able to just take something that was expanded and bare-bonesify it. Although I guess to write a Cliff's Notes, you have to read the crappy books in order to do it, so maybe I should pass on that. Whoever writes these um, is not getting paid enough, though. That's what I'm sure of. Because in order... The, it's not about like the difficulty of what they're doing, but the service they're providing of uh, allowing our young people to not have to read this crap. A++. They deserve a raise. So chapter one of Phantom uh, opens up with a bunch of ballerinas all talking over each other about seeing the Phantom. You know, maybe I saw the Phantom. You didn't see the Phantom. Oh, yes, you did. Da-da-da-da. That seems pretty easy. Um, you just replace those dancers. I was thinking about um, the Fly Girls from In Living Color. I don't know what they're up to these days, but I feel like we could probably make it work. Just, like, update some of the dialogue and defrenchify it. Lays the groundwork for the whole story and the Phantom and everything. I might not need to change a whole lot here. Uh, so I gotta say a thanks to Gaston for that one. At least this time he's done it right. Plus, it, it gives us a good chance to put some nice sex appeal right up top in the movie, which I think is a great trailer bait, but also, uh, you know, just, just gives us a punch right away. If you want a kid to be interested in Phantom of the Opera, and there's a, you know, attractive dancing woman at the beginning, a bunch of them. That seems like a, a great way to do that. So I'm calling that section finished here. Then we get to this plot point where there's these two guys who they own the theater that the Phantom is haunting. And uh, they're retiring. So they're selling the theater to another pair. Um, this new pair doesn't believe in the phantom but the old pair does so they do whatever the phantom asks and sometimes he asks them to do ridiculous things like to reserve a box for him that he never seems to be in or stuff like that it seems like maybe he's just sort of throwing his power around so i think there's a really good comedy opportunity here in expanding this portion of the book and uh, maybe some comedy will will bring it to life a little bit more it does seem like Gaston LaRue sort of started this as a subplot, and then he just sort of dropped it at some point, which seems like kind of a bad habit of Gaston's as I go through this here. He gets all excited to write about like this comedy situation of these two guys taking over the, the theater, and then he sort of forgets that he was writing about it, or like he gets excited about a, a plot point, and then maybe he's not as excited anymore, so he just drops it. I don't mean to toot my own horn, but, uh, you know, and I, I have a tremendous benefit. I have the history. I'm looking back on this. It's 
Monday morning quarterback like a hundred years later. Um, but at the same time, I think I can right this wrong. I think I can correct the glaring errors of old Gaston's manuscript and really make this portion of the book sing. Do you see that pun I did there about the songs? Trying to, I'm trying to get in that songwriting mindset. So now I think what we really need though is like a great comedy duo for this uh, this part. Well, we need two duos because we need the old people who are selling it and the younger duo who's buying it. Now, for the old duo, I'm thinking Eddie Murphy, and I would like for him to play both parts, both old men. Um, this might take some screen magic, but, you know, that's not up to me. I will just describe them as looking like, you know, Eddie Murphy in costume. And for the other pair, the younger pair, I'm picturing Bill Bellamy for sure. And then I was also thinking David Allen Greer. And we could really make them kind of an Abbott and Costello sort of pair. Although neither of them is fat, so that causes me a little bit of a problem. Uh, I wonder if David Allen Greer is willing to put on like an unhealthy amount of weight. Like a lot. I'm going to make a note of that here and come back to it later. Well, greetings to me. Uh, it's October 9th, and uh, the manuscript is coming along. But uh, I did get a letter in the mail today from the publisher. So uh, I tore it open, and it had a short letter inside. It read, Warren, not my name, but I guess closer to Werther than some of the other things I've been called. Warren. After the team convened this week, we decided that in order to make sure things turned out urban enough, the following words should appear in the book. Then there's a second sheet of paper in there uh, with a bunch of words on it, and a bunch of them are crossed out, and there's weird notes I can't read, and a bunch of different handwriting and different colors. And uh, then at the end, kind of in this box, maybe a quarter of one side of the sheet is uh, the finalized list in a very tidy handwriting. I assume they had whoever could do the best handwriting come in and do that. So I've got this list now. And I mean, it's sort of fine. You know, this sort of thing is kind of normal in a novelization situation. It's not totally unusual to be writing about something. You know, you're writing about a movie that hasn't been made yet, right? So you can't watch it. So sometimes the things that are being described in the script aren't really uh, threaded out that well. So it, it it's a little confusing, right? And uh, normally what you would have to do is like read the entire script all the way through and then you can kind of get it and then you go back through and you're like, all right, I think I understand now what's happening. But once in a while, you just get... I wrote a few chapters for the uh, Johnny Mnemonic movie novelization before they gave it to that bastard Terry Bisson, 
which I get. He was pretty hot at that time because he did the virtuosity book. And uh, to be honest, though, I was glad to turn it over <laughs> because like I, I did not understand this script at all. It was talking about Keanu Reeves and he had like a hole in his head and he was jacking off or jacking on or jacking in or something. And he had a computer in his head and or a floppy disk in his head or something. I don't know. I have no idea, which is probably a big part of why my chapters didn't make the cut. I mean, I was kind of just like going ape shit, throwing in whatever I could think of in there. Uh, I talked a lot about the clothes that he was wearing and they described some kind of a laser whip. So I spent a very long time talking about the technical specifications of the laser whip, which were just made up gibberish. But I sort of felt like it was okay because what I received was made up gibberish. So what I replied with was made up gibberish. And uh, then Terry Bisson wrote it. I did see the movie. And um, you, I guess you would think that having read the script and tried to novelize it, I would have a, I would have some insight into the movie, but I was probably just as confused as anyone else. That was a damn confusing movie. And by the time I saw it, I was like, yeah, you know what? I think it's, now I know why I didn't understand this. At first there was some anger at myself of like, what, you idiot. You blew it. You blew another job. And all these, you know, tech science fiction movies and stuff, you're never going to get another one of these, but maybe that's all right. A lot of garbage in there. So anyway, it's kind of normal um, to have some elements of it that you have to puzzle out, right? They give you a script. They don't necessarily tell you everything. And if you're lucky, you might get like a meeting where you can ask questions about what the hell is going on. So only problem with this slang list, though, is they didn't provide any kind of key. So I don't have any context. There's no... It's just a list of words that don't appear in Phantom of the Opera and apparently appear somewhere. Um, and I really don't have a way to know what they mean. <laughs> There's none of these words are in the Yo Teach book, by the way, which I, I think I should return um, because it mostly seems to be about teaching kids in poor neighborhood schools about how to not have babies. And it reads like a little eugenics-y for my taste. And any eugenics-y is too eugenics-y for my taste, okay? In a nonfiction context, anyway. I'm, I'm not real into that. You might, be, you might be listening, reading this memoir that I'm putting together and thinking, you know, I've got my ethical my ethical blind spots. I'm, I'm uh, misrepresenting myself here, but it's, it's a far cry from eugenics, okay? I, I will admit to my faults, but uh, promoting a eugenics program is not going to be one of them. All right, it's October 10th. Um, 
what I decided to do was go through the list of slang I was given and make my best guesses. Um, and they are as follows. So the first word was hit, or phrase, I guess, was hit me on the hip. Um, one time when I was playing basketball in middle school, I made a layup and another kid patted me on the butt. This was uh, unusual for me in a lot of ways because I didn't make a lot of layups or any sort of basketball plays. Um, it was also just in gym class, so we were playing like three-on-three basketball for no stakes. And uh, it, it, I found it demotivating because I didn't really wanted to be uh, patted on the butt by a you know fellow middle schooler. Um, but anyway, hit me on the hip. I'm going to assume that that's what this is. A different way of saying like good job that's not quite, you know, patting on the butt. Like maybe patting on the hip is more acceptable in the way of like, you know, it's more acceptable. Then we've got no diggity. That one I have to assume it means you don't like the thing. Like you don't dig it. I do not diggity this. Um, you know, how do you feel about Brussels sprouts, kids? No diggity. That one feels pretty straightforward. Next, we've got crack a lacking. Uh, I don't have the foggiest idea on that one. Um, could be an expression like, you know, I'm guessing it's an expression like great Scott or, oh my goodness, you know, crack a lacking. Um, crack a lacking. That's a really nice automobile. Something like that. Hoochie. Um, I think this is a drink of some kind. Like maybe one of those juice bags with the straw in it. I feel like I've seen a product in the store that's called hoochie. Maybe strawberry flavor. Something like that. Shiesty. Uh, this shirt seems to me like a term for a Jewish person. Um, but I'm not sure whether it's pejorative or complimentary. You know what I mean? Because I would be sort of surprised if the publisher wanted me to use a, a pejorative racial term for a Jewish person. But, you know, also shysty, the word sounds like fun and easy to rhyme. So I like that. But I have been caught on the wrong side of thinking a word sounds fun before. And it uh, turns out that word is not fun. So, you know. I probably should have, I'm going to just assume that this is a word for a Jewish person that is not uncomplimentary. Bomb diggity. Uh, that must be really super don't like something. Using the logic of no diggity. So if I dig this or diggity this, then I dropped a bomb on my liking of it or my diggity. You'd have bomb diggity. So according to my calculations here, I, I kind of tried to diagram it out in a sentence. And uh, I think it means you really don't like something. This one is uh, Thoro. Spelled like Thor the Thunder God with an O. Maybe Thoro. Um, I have no idea what this one is. This one I've decided... A couple... A couple things I was looking at here, I was like, what, how could I include this um, in a way that, you know, doesn't reveal that I don't know what it means? 
So I'm just going to have a character notice the word thorough spray painted on the side of a building. And I think that that will include the word in the manuscript, but maybe get me out of the obligation to use it in a sentence. Um, this is fat, spelled P-H-A-T. Um, this is the way I'm going to... Let's Let's say your mom put on some weight, but you find it endearing. So you don't want to call her fat, but you want to call her like a modified version of fat because she is kind of fat. So this is like a different way of saying fat without, without being insulting about it. You're trying to be nice, but also realistic about being fat. And last I have scrub, which I'm going to assume is a very clean person. Um, you know, they've scrubbed up. They look good. They're clean. Seems, seems logical. So I don't think this is going to be a problem. Um, it wasn't too hard to sort of come up with with uh, meanings for most of this vocabulary, and I'm just going to pepper it in and hope everything's okay. But I, I, you know, I certainly don't think the publisher is going to notice. And then, I mean, what are the kids going to notice? You know, they'll they'll be fine. They'll figure it out. It's not like kids are real attuned to this stuff anyway. Okay, it is October 11th, and uh, we're, at, we're at the point in the story where we have a dead body. We get, we get a dead body pretty early on in Phantom of the Opera, which is great, because that'll, that'll help get people in the mood for action. You know, uh, the, the intro, I'm not going to lie, is a little slow, um, so maybe we'll, we'll cut into this dead body pretty fast. So in the book, someone finds a dead body of uh, some, some guy who works at the theater. So let's see, who was the guy? Joseph Bouquet. Okay, so we're going to rename him uh, J. Bouquet because uh, his rhymes are as sweet as a bunch of roses. Damn, I am good. I, you know, it's taken me some time to get in the zone, but I think, I think I'm getting there. I think this is happening. So in the book, everyone sort of says this is a suicide, but also, you know, Jay Bouquet took his own life, but also everyone sort of knows it's the Phantom. I'm not sure exactly how this works, so we're going to have to, we're going to just have to sort of redo this entire body discovery thing. So uh, I've written up a little thing. I'm going to try it out loud here, see if it sounds okay. So we've got Man 1 and Man 2. Man 1. Oh, Damn. There is a dead body down here. Man 2. What? Are you serious? Man 1. Crack a lackin. Of course I'm serious. Man 2. You're right. This is no diggity. Man 1. No diggity indeed. Man 2. Do you think he shot himself? Man 1. Bomb diggity. Look, everyone knows Jay Bouquet's left hand is his shooting hand. Remember his rhyme? My name's Jay Bouquet, and I'm here to say, 
I shot with my right in a major way. Man two, you're right. We should call the police. Man one, are you crazy? We don't need police running all around all over our underground rap concerts, ruining everything. Man two, you're right. What should we do instead? Man one, let's roll up my man in this big rug and put him in the alley. Man two, all right. You don't think anyone will be mad about this carpet, though? It looks pretty nice. Man one, it is a pretty shysty carpet, but I think we're just going to have to go for it. Something like that should work, right? So then we've got our we've got our phantom, we've got our dead body. I think uh, I think this should put us in the clear. Uh, and then we have the discovery of the body, and you know I, I think in this version everyone's just gonna know it's the phantom, and they're covering it up to keep the police away. That seems like the most reasonable way to handle this situation. So we have our next scene. Uh, in this scene, we have Raul, which I'm going to pronounce the same, but I'll spell it uh, R-A-O-O-L. That sounds kind of like a, a hip-hop sort of flavor there. Or it looks like one. It sounds exactly the same as a French name, but uh, yeah, it works, right? So in the original book, Raul is return- he's returning home. He's been away for a while. Uh, I don't know where he's been or what he's been doing. Gaston LaRue doesn't seem big on, like, characterization or backstory. We get, uh, you know, I don't know if Gaston LaRue invented the expedition exposition dump in the horror movie at the end where we have a character that comes out of nowhere and explains everything. But uh, he might have. So Raul uh, goes to the opera. And he's surprised when his old flame, his old buddy, Christine, gets on the stage and sings. And he's very uh, taken with her. So then he goes backstage after the show to congratulate her. But he gets all uptight because she ignores him. um, And he thinks he hears a male voice in her dressing room. So maybe this is a thing that like old-timey French people were really uh, like strict about or uptight or something. I... I was never under the impression that theater folks were like really sexually uptight or anything like that. And French people, I thought, well, I don't know. I guess I always thought French people were less buttoned down than we are. But I mean, that's a, that's based on, I met only one French person in my entire life. Uh, we had this foreign exchange student in high school, Miriam, and uh, she never wore a bra. So I guess that's where my, my idea is on French unuptightness come from. I mean, she never wore a bra, which was great, but she also had a much thicker mustache than I did, uh, which, to be honest, isn't saying a whole lot. I know that sounds, like, really horrible to say, but actually, I never had much of a mustache in high school, or even now. I uh, My mustache came in, at first it was just this tiny row of hairs, 
that kind of grew just below my nostrils and they curled up into my nose instead of down uh, onto my upper lip. So they always tickled inside my nose and I was always picking at them and trying to pull them out and stuff. But it's pretty hard to, if you ever want a, a challenge for your, your pinching strength, try and grip the greasy mustache hair of a greasy preteen and try and pull out like, you know, a hair that's like a one hundredth of an inch long. Um, so anyway, it was always tickling in my nose and I was picking at them. And that's kind of how I became known as a nose picker, uh, that in the nose picking. But, you know, most, I would say 60 to 70% of it was trying to pull those hairs. I got a reputation as a nose picker based on only 40% of actual nose picking. But uh, also being known as a nose picker is kind of unfortunate when your given name is Parker. Uh, Parker Picker, Picker Parker. And, you know, thank goodness I went into this career where changing your name is normal. Because uh, I would just, I hate to think of Parker Picker coming back to haunt me. Anyway, I think we're going to have to update this uh, some. So we're going to say Raul was in the military. And, uh, you know, just was just got home from a tour in Iraq. And then he goes to a rap concert in his old neighborhood. And I'm picturing like an underground rap show in a warehouse or something. Is that a thing? Like I know kids who listen to metal and that electronic music go to underground shows. But is rap an underground sort of concert situation? I'm not really sure. But you know what? Like every movie seems to have an underground something. Like, it doesn't matter if it's techno or jazz or whatever. I mean, they're probably underground jazz clubs, right? Which is probably good. I would honestly prefer if most jazz music was hidden underground. Uh, not because it's like I'm worried that someone will bust it up, because then I would never have to hear it. So Raul goes to the rap show, and he sees Christine, little Christine, open for some big act, right? And he's really impressed. So then he goes backstage to see little Christine, but then a bouncer is like, nobody gets in to see little C. And then, but Raul hears a man's voice through the door, so he knows that's not true. And he's all put out and butthurt because she doesn't seem to want to see him as opposed to not seeing any, uh, you know, any men or whatever. So he gets pissed and he waits around the corner for Christine to leave. And then he rushes to the door after the bouncer leaves, flings it open, and there's nobody in there, including Christine. She's also gone. Um, I think this is working. I think we've modernized it enough. You know, and it's got a little something to say about, like, the dangers of being overly masculine or whatever. I don't know. Maybe there'll be some term for this in the future, but doing masculine behaviors that are, like, radioactive or something. Today is October 13th. Uh, 
I've hit a little bit of a snag here. So last time I was going on about Raul goes to see Christine, right? And he gets all upset because he hears a man's voice in the dressing room. And like, in the book, Raul cannot let this go. Like, not for one second. Uh, he heard Christine say she loved the man and now he's flipping the fuck out. Which is kind of weird. I mean, I'm not sure how this tracks Gaston, LaRue. Because, like, they were childhood friends, but they haven't seen each other in forever, right? So I don't understand why this guy's getting all uptight about her being in love with another man. I mean, I would be bummed out if I was in that situation, but I don't think I'd get all furious, right? You know, uh, deep inside, of course. You know, I believe me, I hold a grudge against girls who snub me in elementary school. And by snubbed me, I mean, you know cut me in line or something. And I'm like, well, you can just forget about uh, us having a wedding and being married happily ever after and having two children and three dogs. Some will say it's too many dogs. Some will say not enough. I say we have enough love for all the dogs. That's what I would say if you hadn't cut me in line, Stephanie. Anyway, I... But, like, if you haven't seen the girl for, like, years, what what was the expectation here? I'm not really sure how that works. So, I mean, maybe we need to, like, modernize these characters. Like, maybe in Gaston LaRue's world, it's normal to sort of pine over a girl and then ply her with letters until she agrees to meet up with you. Then you profess her love to her, your love to her, like, instantly. And then she tells you she's focusing on her career. That's kind of what happens in the book. Actually, now that I say it out loud, it's kind of perfect. She, She's so focused on her rap career, she doesn't have time for men. You know, this is like the, the classic rom-com situation, right? Like she works at a women's magazine, and she's so focused on her career in women's magazine making that she doesn't have time. She feels like, you know, her love life is a little stale or whatever. Um, this is, this is good. I think this can work. I think this whole idea of like the woman who's focused on her career, surely this isn't going to last much longer in rom-com. So I think, I think it's time to strike and integrate this in while it, while it's still relevant because I don't, I can't possibly imagine this idea is going to last much longer. The idea of like, there's no way you could have like a job and be in love. That would be, that's just too much, isn't it? You know, I've never, I've never actually had that happen to me in real life. I don't know. It, has anyone had that happen in real life where it's like, oh, I would love to date you. Uh, I'm madly in love with you. I just need to focus on putting out this magazine and the magazine is always like in the movie seems more important than the magazines from real life. Cause the real life magazines, the women's magazines I see are like, here's some clothes you can wear. And here's what somebody did. You know, here's like a special cartwheel they did that makes their butt look good. That seems to be sort of the limit of women's magazines. How, how hard do you need to focus on that? God. Okay, so anyway, little Christine tells Raul she doesn't want to mess around with men because of her rap career. 
She needs to focus on it. And so then we could have like a part where she gives some kind of heartfelt speech about how this is her big, her big chance to make it. You know, she's going to, I don't know, we'll have to come up with some language for it. Like she's going to take her shot. Uh, I'm not going to miss my shot. Something like that. I think that's one of the songs for sure is Christine talking about that. I don't know. I don't know if that, it seems like kind of a weird, weird thing to put in this book, but I think we could make it work. Okay, uh, disaster has struck. Disaster. Well, I mean, disaster has struck a little... Tupac Shakur has just been killed. I mean, he's been killed within the last month or so. He's been, he's been dead for a little while. So, uh, I guess, you know, that was, that was disaster one, and then disaster two was we all found out about it. Um, so we we had to have a pretty uh, tense emergency board meeting. It was kind of awkward. Um, it was very awkward for me at first because somebody pointed at me and asked why I didn't correct them about Tupac being dead. Um, but before I could sort of like stumble around and not answer the question, uh, somebody somebody else you know slammed on the table and said he hasn't known anything so far. So why would he know that? And uh, that guy really saved my bacon uh, because he's totally right. You know, but the truth of it is nobody knew Tupac was dead. Um, and I think, I think we all just were sharing a feeling of embarrassment uh, because, you know, part of it was not knowing about the cultural event of a significant rapper dying, but also I think there was probably some embarrassment because... You know, we'd been working on a Tupac-centric project for a couple weeks now, uh, and Tupac was dead. You know, and when we found this out, that's when one of the board members said, oh, well, I guess that explains why Tupac's people haven't really been getting back to me at all. And then another board member said to him, you're fired. And then the first board member said something like, you know, you can't fire me, you're not my boss, whatever. So then the two of them broke off into a small group argument and asked for a, a chart so they could figure out if the one guy could fire the other guy or not. And, you know, we kind of broke off into other little arguments. And uh, one of the arguments, someone said we could do, maybe do this as an animated movie. So maybe it'd still work. They could just use a voice alike for Tupac. They said, you know, like maybe even computer graphics. Like that's kind of a cool new thing maybe kids would like that and someone else piped up and said oh, okay some kind of hologram Tupac come on man use your brain another group turned on MTV and uh, you know we watched for a few minutes and then we did find another artist uh, the Notorious B.I.G. so somebody said alright let's get let's get Mr. Notorious's people on the phone let's see if we can 
shift this role over to him. You know, he's probably the other biggest rapper around right now. So let's let's see if we can make this happen. Someone brought this fancy phone thing in the room. It's like a huge box so everyone could talk on the phone and hear what Notorious was saying, which I kind of wish they I couldn't hear any of it and couldn't have talked because it did not go well. Um, one of Notorious's people answered and just straight away asked how much the offer was for and then said, hold for Chris. And I practically filled my pants with pee at that point because I had never heard that large of a number before in money. Everybody else in the room seemed to be very comfortable with this number, but this was my first time. You know, I've heard this number associated with other things before, but not dollars. And uh, boy, did I learn a lesson today. And that lesson is that if you want to make money, uh, you should be a person who writes down rap songs and then sings those rap songs over a beat, as opposed to being a person who writes a novelization of a novel meant to be made into a movie. Um, Just the disparity between our pay levels was a lot. Um... Anyway, things were going pretty good with Mr. Notorious, who I think I can call Chris now. Uh, he seemed very receptive. And also, I figure I can call him Chris because I called him Chris on the phone call. I, well, I said, hi, Chris. And uh, he said, hello. But, you know, everybody else at the table looked at me, because probably because I said, hi, Chris, halfway through the phone call. And I uh, should have either said it earlier or... Preferably not at all. Anyway, things were going pretty good. But then someone at the table who, well, me at the table, kind of started talking about what a relief it was that it sounded good to him because, you know, we had Tupac in there, but we all know what happened to Tupac. Now, apparently that really pissed off Chris. Um, I didn't know that, you know, there was some kind of a rivalry between the two. And uh, Chris Chris didn't want to take a role that had been originally for Tupac. He didn't want his sloppy seconds, as he put it. Um, and so then he hung up. And someone at the table said, okay, well, you just blew that for us. Uh, so now it's your responsibility to fix it. So it's my job. Uh, They gave me until tomorrow to figure out a way to fix this problem. Okay, so in order to come up to a solution with the problem of Tupac's death and uh, figuring out how to make, well, I guess also the twofold problem, the Tupac twofold problem of uh, Tupac's death and me blowing it with Curtis Notorious, 
I've decided to go on a mini bender, which might sound like a weird idea, but hear me out. Um, In one of the copies of Phantom of the Opera that I got at the bookstore, there's an introduction by some nerd. And this nerd says Gaston LaRue, his father died, and he went on like a year-long bender. And this was kind of before Gaston became a writer and wrote Phantom of the Opera or anything like that. I mean, I guess he took his dad's death pretty hard. And, you know, I didn't take my death, dad's death too badly, but he is still alive. So I guess the result remains to be seen of whether that spurs me on to become a great writer. I'm not going to say that my dad should hurry up and die so that I can become a great writer. But at the same time, it would be nice to be a great writer for a little bit longer of a period. Anyway, uh, in order to get into LaRue's head, I thought maybe I should go on a bender like that's as similar to his bender as possible. And maybe that would give me a headspace like his and I could find the answers to our Tupac problem. So apparently at the time Gaston was drinking a lot, he probably would have been drinking absinthe. And uh, so I started, I, I decided to start uh, my bender like Gaston LaRue. So I didn't shower this morning, and I went to medieval times and ate a whole chicken with my hands. And I know, like, Gaston LaRue wasn't medieval times old, but, you know, uh, medieval times has Pepsi, right? So it kind of splits the difference. You eat, like, a chicken and watch nights, and you eat a chicken with your hands, but you're also drinking a Pepsi. So I think I think we can comfortably say that puts us sometimes in the Gaston LaRue days. I did try to smoke, too. I mean, he probably smoked cigarettes. He's French, after all. But smoking is actually kind of harder than it looks. And, uh, you know, they will not let you return cigarettes and try another brand, I learned today. I guess this is something you would know if you smoked. But uh, I'm not a smoker, so I learned a lesson today. Um, so then I couldn't find any absinthe at the store. But the high C Ecto Cooler looks kind of the right shade of green to me. And uh, mixing that with a good deal of wine should have the contents of my stomach in a similar state to Gaston's. And uh, I got a French bread pizza, too. So, you know, that was the most French thing I could think of and I've got my my made up absinthe I've got wine uh, so here's to us Gaston let's uh, let's do a mini bender and we'll solve our Tupac problem I call my dad Gaston LaRue's dad he can't call. Gaston LaRue's dad can't be called ever by anybody. Ever again. That's why Gaston's so sad. But I don't have to live the Gaston life. I can call my dad whenever I want. Thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. He has a tape. I got I, my dad's tape on his machine. 
I got a tape of songs. Start speaking at the tone. Dad? Zad? He puts two songs on there. He couldn't pick the song. Okay, Dad, it's me. It's oh, good. Someone finally called. Hi. Nobody's here now. I see this you the put the whole machine. tape of songs I'm on glad here. You called. My mechanism was getting rusted. Why would you calls. put so many songs on here, Dad? And the folks will call you back. Start <laughs> talking at the tone. If I remember how to make one. I just need to talk to my dad. Ah, uh, yes. It would appear that you have called... Why won't this tape let me talk to my own father? To whom you wish to speak this is, is ridiculous. However, if at the tone How am I supposed to tell my dad I love him? I'll see your call with all these message machines. Job I've ever had. Oh, God, Jesus hey, Christ, Dad. Now, and I'm in the middle of lifting, uh, uh, doing some things. If you want to leave your name and number when you hear What's wrong with the these idiot dads? They don't even know. Back. And don't squeal on They me, don't okay? even know. Ugh. Okay. Dad. Dad, I'm so happy you're alive. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean to drink like Gaston LaRue because he was sad. His dad was dead. Don't ever die, Dad, okay? If you died, I don't know what I would do. Maybe I'd write a really confusing book that a lot of people bought, and then maybe someday someone would have to make a hip-hop version of my book. That would be great. That'd show my dad. My dead dad. That's what he gets for dying. But, Dad, don't die for a long, till a long time away. Because you're my dad, and I needed dad for stuff. Dad, do you remember that time you dressed up like Fam of the Opera for Halloween? That was because of Gaston LaRue. That's who he was. Okay, Dad. I'll see you next time. Stay alive till then. Also, just change your answering machine so it's only one of the songs. Just pick one. It's okay, just do one. Okay, bye, bye, Dad. Okay, uh, I'm prepared to admit that Gaston LaRue Bender may have been a mistake. I think all I accomplished was calling my dad, which wasn't so bad. I mean, he called me back, and he said he was very touched by what I said, uh, most of what I said. Some of it he couldn't understand, and so I guess those parts were not as touching, but um, I, the sentiment still came through, so... I guess drinking a lot and then calling your dad. You know, drinking a lot to understand Gaston LaRue uh, doesn't work, but to connect with your dad works. So, I mean, I guess that's a sort of a double fuck you to Gaston LaRue, but here we are. Uh, after I 
called my dad, I threw up a lot of bright green foam, which that was kind of scary at first. But then I remembered that the ecto cooler I was drinking was bright green. So it's probably okay that it was still bright green when it was in throw up form as well. I think, I think, and now I'm, I'm feeling a bit better. Uh, there is some good news, some serendipitous good news. Um, I put one of those books I got at the bookstore in the bathroom. So I figured the book might, you know, impress a girl if one ever came over. I mean, maybe not, because on one hand, it is a classic novel by author of Phantom of the Opera, Gaston LaRue. And on the other hand, it's in the bathroom where I take shits. Um, while I was taking one of these shits, uh, I was looking at this book that I'd put in the bathroom, which is a book called Balao. Um, this is a little weird, so hang in there. Don't get all bomb diggity on me. So Bilal is kind of the same story as Phantom of the Opera, also by Gaston LaRue. So I think he just kind of remade the same thing, but then he added some flares to it. For example, uh, it stars an ape man, or like a Bigfoot or something. So Bilal is like this Bigfoot, and the book says he can pass as human. And it doesn't really explain that too well, which kind of makes sense because I don't think it's explicable. Um, but whatever, he lives in he lives in an elaborate treehouse in the woods, and then a bunch of uh, forest-based criminals um, force Bilal to do crimes. So I guess when Bilal is doing one of these crimes, he accidentally kills somebody. And the cops come after him. And uh, also, Bilal is in love with a human woman, which is the daughter of a scientist who created him. And then uh, Bilal dies at the end after a chase where he falls off a roof in Paris. Um, also, Bilal has superpowers, like he can make other animals do his bidding, and he trains an ape to imitate a human at one point. So anyway, my first thought after I finished Bilal was I, that I had been diarrheaing for a really long time because I read the entire book. My legs were asleep. I had to crawl off the toilet onto the ground so that I could unbend my legs and get feeling back in them. Uh, but my second thought was, you know, maybe this book, which to be fair is fucking nuts. And I don't know what Gaston LaRue was thinking. Like, he felt like Phantom of the Opera wasn't crazy enough. So he's like, what if Phantom of the Opera was an ape man? But although it's fucking nuts, this might be the answer to our problem. And um, my hope is maybe I can convince the board to switch books. You know, Phantom of the Opera, it's been done a lot. What if we switch to Balao? My third thought was that I probably should have just read Phantom of the Opera on the toilet if I was going to read a whole book. Maybe I should read the one I'm trying to novelize. But then my fourth thought, I don't really remember, because that's when I sort of stopped numbering the thoughts I was having and instead started working on a pitch for Bilal.
Okay, so I met with the board, and they did not love my idea of the Balao switch. Um, pretty much immediately, someone on the board asked if I was really suggesting we do a movie about an ape man who is a rapper. And uh, did I not see the racist implications of that? And I don't know why that hadn't occurred to me before. But probably it hadn't occurred to me before because when I came up with the idea, I was diarrheaing the entire time. So I'm going to blame the dehydration. Um, but I, I don't want to tell the board that I couldn't, that I didn't see the racist implications because I was diarrheaing too hard. So that, you know, that's kind of like my personal internal excuse, not so much my excuse for the board. So I did have to think fast and come up with something to tell the board. And unfortunately, thinking fast is not one of my strengths. Generally, thinking isn't my strength, you know, and it's only worse when I try to do it fast. Sort of the way if you're bad at golf and you try and do it really fast so no one will notice how bad you are, you end up sort of highlighting how bad you are at golf. That's what I found anyway, because that's what I tried. Uh, with golf, I wasn't trying to impress a girl that time, but I was trying to impress uh, a girl's dad. But uh, the only thing I impressed upon that dad was that I'm bad at golf. To his credit, he didn't say anything. And I don't think he even told his daughter that at some point I just wandered off of the golf course in the game and left and walked home. Um, maybe he told her, maybe not. But, you know, he didn't, he didn't chase after me or make a scene, and uh, I, I still appreciate him for that to this day. So anyway, thinking fast probably wasn't going to happen. So I, what I did is I told them that same golf story I just told you um, to stall while I came up with an idea, and I told it very slowly. And I think some of the board was pissed because I made it seem like the story had something to do with my idea, um, but it really didn't. It was just to stall for time. And then it's a pretty good story, too. Like, feel free to use my golf story if you want to stall for time. Because it's pretty simple and it has no point. So it's just that you went golfing and then it didn't impress a dad because you're not good at it. And then you left. So that's a story you can sort of tell on automatic autopilot while you come up with something to say. So then, boom, I had it. My suggestion was we could do Bilal, and then we changed the book to be about a grunge rocker from Seattle instead of a rapper. Because Bigfoot was from Seattle. And so then we could change it to a grunge rocker, and that kind of eliminates the problems of the racial implications. So they considered it, and for my efforts I was rewarded with the opportunity to write some sample chapters of the Bilal grunge rock story, in addition to bringing more uh, pages for hip-hopra next time. But I think I'm not going to do the Seattle stuff. I'm just going to move ahead with hip-hopra. I mean, you can kind of tell by the way everyone was saying, you know, what about the urbans and urban kids, and saying urban that way, that they say it, that I don't think they're going to go for it. I don't think they feel like the Seattle grunge scene has the same 
bourbon appeal. So I don't think they're actually going to care about my Balao pages. I'm just sticking with hip hopra. Okay, so now we're, we're really getting into the meat of the Phantom of the Opera story. So in the original, the Phantom makes some demands of the new owners. He wants his usual box seats, his usual attendant, and he wants Christine to sing a big solo or something instead of some other lady. The new owners completely ignore the Phantom because they don't even think he's real, so I kind of can't blame them. And then the Phantom kind of goes from 0 to 60 and fucks their shit up immediately. Sorry for that coarse language. I'm kind of trying to get in the mood here. So the Phantom uh, fucks up the singer's voice and makes it croak, which seems like kind of a fitting punishment. You know, that one of his uh, things he does, I kind of get it. You know, he wants Christine to sing the solo. They have this other singer do it, so he makes her not sing very good. That works, you know. Uh, then he drops a chandelier on the audience and kills some lady. Let me just repeat that. He escalates from making a lady's voice sound funny to dropping a goddamn chandelier on a room full of people, and he kills some lady, crushes her with a chandelier. So apparently the lady he crushes also just so happens to be the lady who is going to take over as the box attendant for his box. Box attendant sounds like a sex toy. Anyway, I already kind of don't feel a ton of sympathy for the Phantom. I mean, you mess up someone singing, and sure, and it's kind of petty in like a weird way to do it. But then you crushed a woman who's guilty of taking a job. This is probably just some lady who needs a job, and the Phantom uh, feels fine just crushing her to death. What the hell? I mean, I've been in a situation like this. I've been in a parallel life situation, so I can identify with the lady who got crushed. You know, and what I went through actually happened, so it is much worse than being crushed by a chandelier. So, like, I used to make pizzas, and I replaced this guy named Ray at the pizza place, which is kind of hilarious in New York City, because all the pizza places are famous Rays or original Rays or whatever. But this guy I replaced wasn't a famous or an original Ray. He was just a Ray. That's even what his name tag said. It was a Ray. A Ray. So anyway, you know, even though Ray wasn't a special Ray, apparently he was really good at making pizza. And I was really bad at making pizza. Because all that I heard after I got there was about the great and powerful Ray. After I started, all I heard about, you know, was how I wasn't living up to his legend and how, like, the stuff on the pizza was ending up on the counter on the floor instead of on the pizza. And then you're not supposed to take it when it ends up on the counter or the floor. You're not supposed to put it back on the pizza. I couldn't do anything right. You know what I mean? So people mostly 
were unhappy with my replacement. But, like, nobody came in with a shotgun or dropped a chandelier or, like, a pizza, pushed a pizza oven over on me. They just said, like, hey, asshole and stuff like that. So I guess, like, the point of that story is sometimes you end up absorbing the consequences of somebody else's bad decision. In my case, I was absorbing the pizza shop owner's consequence for his bad decision, which was hiring me. So, I mean, maybe it was a little bit my own consequences, too. So maybe I'm not absorbing anyone else. Maybe this is fine. Okay, so I think the way we're going to work this out in the story is Phantom, the rapper, is talking to the new theater owners. By the way, David Allen Greer, I'm told, will put on a ton of weight if he gets his own song. Uh, If I don't write in a song for him, he's not willing to put on the weight, but he will wear a fat suit. So either way, he's in. Um, So Phantom sends a note to the new theater's owner's pager, and he says he wants a certain bartender working that night, and he wants his table open for him, and there better not be anyone sitting at his corner outside the theater. Phantom was, like, known for being at the same corner after all the shows, right? That's where people would go and hang out with him, and probably they would stand around like a big barrel of fire. Because what says urban life more than a barrel of fire and a bunch of guys around it, right? So, of course, the owners say no, maybe even like, fuck that. That'll help the kids enjoy it. If it says fuck, they'll feel like it's transgressive. And then after the show that night, they find a dead person on Phantom's Corner who was smashed by a car. And get this, it's a really cool Cadillac with chandeliers mounted on the hood, like that one guy from Escape from New York had. Um, that way we get our chandelier reference in there. Um, but you know, it's not exactly the same. It's a little bit modernized, a little updated. It's perfect. Another way of saying this is that I've come up with the perfect solution. All right, at today's board meeting, uh, there's good news. Uh, I had solved the problem of our lead. And the way I solved the problem was stalling so long that somebody else came up with a solution. But, you know, I think I do deserve some credit because I think in some ways, uh, just sitting back and letting someone else come up with a solution can be a solution itself. So anyway, at the board meeting... Somebody came in and said, I got it. We make the Phantom a woman. And we switch all the parts. So the Phantom is a woman. And she's in love with a male rapper. And then Raul is also a woman. Um, So I have to admit, first off, uh, a two-woman love triangle is way more appealing than a two-man love triangle. Everyone should know this. This should be instinctual. I don't know what kind of freaky shit Gaston LaRue was into, but uh, two-woman love triangle, I'm in. 
Uh, another piece of good news is they did get a rapper named Lil Kim on board to be the Phantom. So I don't know who she is, but I'm told she's kind of an up-and-coming coming star. She runs in the same circles with uh, the notorious Chris B.I.G., who I guess must not be that mad because he, you know, passed the role on to her. Um, the other female rapper, the Raul, hasn't been cast yet, but uh, there is some good news on uh, on the, the Christine part. So because the Phantom was going to be kind of a relative unknown, with Lil' Kim isn't that famous, right? And they wanted some star power in the movie. So they got a, a the male part. They got Shaq. That's right, the Shaq. The mount, round mound of rebound. Oh, maybe that's Charles Barkley. Well, whatever. It's Shaq. Shaq. What do you, he doesn't need a nickname because his nickname is Shaq. And he's a, a gigantic. So I think this should be a pretty easy replacement for me. I'll just go swap out all the stuff where Phantom is shirtless, probably. I think. I mean, I think... Uh, I guess Lil' Kim has said she's willing to do nudity. But I think we're looking for a PG-13 thing here. So I, I don't think her being topless uh, throughout most of the movie as we were planning to have Tupac really works. But I don't... I, who knows? Um, I guess, you know, there is there is a little caveat. Always with the good news comes some bad. Apparently Lil' Kim has a marijuana charge. And they want to make sure there's an anti-drug message in the story. Um, you know, since this is going out to kids, it'll kind of show for her court date that she's like, I guess not into drugs because she was in a movie that has an anti-drug message. So, I mean, it is kind of weird because after reading Phantom of the Opera, I can only assume that Gaston LaRue was using drugs because, like, this narrative seems like it's basically held together with lines of cocaine. I mean, like, people don't think about it as much as they should, but you could just, like, go buy amphetamine at a drugstore in the Gaston LaRue days. And, you know, like, when, when I think about the future, because, you know, Phantom of the Hip Hopra is going to replace Phantom of the Opera. So hundreds of years from now, people will be looking at Phantom of the Hip Hopra, and, like, I wouldn't say that I use drugs. But, you know, I, for example, uh, when I was doing Killer Clowns from Outer Space novelization, I was taking loads of Tylenol for these headaches I was getting. So, you know, I wouldn't say I was on drugs. I wouldn't say I was doing Tylenol. But, like, maybe a hundred years from now, someone will be like, can you believe you just bought Tylenol over the counter? That guy was beaked out beaked up on Tylenol like you wouldn't believe. I mean, it seems possible, right? So, you know, I don't want to stand here and say that I'm a total non-straight-edge drug user guy or whatever. Um, but I do have my suspicions that Phantom of the Opera is at least a little something to drugs. But, you know, I'm not exactly sure how to one integrate this drug message into the story. So I think we're going to have to get clever on that one. So overall, I would say good news uh, in terms of casting of the movie and whatever. And, uh, you know, minor bad news in sort of horrible violation of the conditions under which Phantom of the Opera was created. And uh, that'll just have to even out.
Okay, so when we last left off, Phantom had just killed someone with his chandeliers mounted on a Cadillac because they were standing on his corner. And uh, the next part of the original book, after the whole chandelier crushing thing, is where Christine and Raoul talk, and they basically explain everything that's going on. They go up to a rooftop and talk about everything. So, you know, like, this is all the stuff where everyone in the book figures out what kind of book they're in and realize the Phantom is just a very ugly dude. He's not actually a ghost. He's just a guy with a fucked up face. Uh, so then, because I guess he's not an actual ghost, uh, Christine and Raoul decide to get engaged, sort of, and then they plan to run away, but then the Phantom kidnaps Christine. So basically all of this happens, you know, they figure everything out and explain everything. They have a rooftop discussion, Raul and Christine, and like, I don't know, it just seems boring for them to just talk all of this out. I'm trying to think cinematic and, you know, to, to spice this up and make it more youthful. So like they could have some kind of business they're doing while they have this conversation, right? So then I was like, youth, uh, what do people who are young like? And I thought of the mall. And I was thinking then, do urban youths like the mall? So I took the trip to the mall and I wanted to see if it would be a good setting for urban youths. Would they identify with this mall setting? I did see a lot of youths at the mall, but not as many urban youths as I was hoping for. So I briefly considered maybe I should set the scene somewhere like, I don't know, an outdoor basketball court. But then I thought that might be more racist than setting it in the mall. You know, like, if I set it in the mall, and that's not realistic because urban youth don't hang out there, um, that's one thing. But then if I set it at a basketball court, that might be bad. So I think the answer here is leaning into my strengths. And one of my strengths is coming off as clueless. So if I set it in the mall and that turns out to be inaccurate, everyone will think I'm clueless instead of setting it in a basketball court and maybe people will think I'm an evil asshole. So mall it is. There were uh, the most, the highest concentration of youths was at the arcade. And they were most crowded around this game called like Fighting Streets 2 or something. So I figured I should try it out in order to immerse myself in the culture. And I asked the uh, arcade worker if they had Fighting Streets 1. Because I thought maybe if I played the second game first, I wouldn't understand the plot or anything. So it was best to start at the beginning. Um, by the way, the arcade worker was a cute girl. Which surprised me because she was the only cute girl in the arcade. Maybe the only girl in the arcade. But I didn't want to make the same mistake I made in the bookstore of hitting on a younger girl. So I came up with this clever ruse and I asked for a job application and how old one had to be to work at the arcade. Uh, so I, I asked and she repeated back to me, how old does one have to be? Um, and I guess my phrasing made her say, I'm pretty sure you're old enough. So she worked right around my ruse to try and figure out her possible low end of age. And I didn't have another ruse at the ready, so I did fill out a job application for the arcade. You know, so I didn't blow my cover. Then I got a few dollars and quarters, and I did ask for a receipt for reimbursement, 
I mean, this is legitimate research for the book, but she said they don't give receipts for the games. And the way she said it was more coarse. It was something like, what are you going to do, play a sucky game and then ask for your money back? Which wasn't my plan. Although that is a potential scheme, I guess, for anyone considering uh, trying to scam an arcade. But, you know, my advice is to write a book that involves drinking booze and playing arcade games as a business expense. Uh, that seems to have worked pretty well for me so far. All right. Um, are you aware of the term Pac-Man fever? Because I had that, although maybe it was more like Street Fighter II fever. Or it might have been one of the many blows to the head I've received. Let, let me go back a little bit. So the last time we spoke, I had just returned from the mall and from the arcade. And I guess those games and their charming bleeps and bloops got into my head because I couldn't focus on Phantom of the Opera at all when I got home. And so I found myself, to my own surprise, putting my shoes back on and heading back to the arcade the same evening. I played every game in that place. And I think it might have affected my brain. But, you know, I think some of the things in the arcade affected my brain more than others. Um, especially, there was this one automobile racing game. It has a chair you sit in, and it's sort of enclosed from floor to ceiling with openings on the sides. So you slide in from the side, and as I slid in, I smashed my head really hard on the side of the machine. Um, I also hit my head pretty hard when I fell off a motorcycle racing game, where you sort of are supposed to lean the motorcycle from side to side. And, uh, you know, I was next to a kid who was probably about four years old but must have possessed far superior grip strength to my own because he managed to hold on and uh, I woke up on the floor. There was also an errant basketball from a basketball shooting game which struck me in the back of the head while I played another game. And I did slip and fall in the mall bathroom and I woke up and noticed a large chip out of the sink, uh, presumably from where I hit my head. Also, I got a pretty hefty, hefty electric shock from the quarter machine. That was probably my fault because I was soaking wet from when I fell in the bathroom. The whole floor was wet in there for some reason. Well, I mean, for the reason that it's a public bathroom in the mall. That's reason enough for a floor to be completely wet. Anyway, I'm not sure which of these blows did it, but one or another caused me to sort of black out. And I apparently made it home okay, though I presume I was kicked out of the arcade because I had a lot of quarters left, which must have been in my pockets because now they're strewn all over the floor of my apartment. Um, but in my haze, I did rewrite the entirety of what I've gotten done so far, but so that the story reflected something closer to the narrative of Street Fighter 2. Basically, the Phantom of the Opera becomes the Phantom of the Fighting, and he hosts a big fighting tournament to decide who's the greatest fighter of all time. And our hero, Guile, 
arrives to win the tournament. There's even a character in Street Fighter 2 named Vega who wears a mask. So at some point in the manuscript, it seems I switched to the Phantom being Vega or something. I don't know. It's kind of messy, as you can imagine. And it is kind of literally messy because it smells like it was written by someone who soaked up a lot of toilet water with his body and his clothes. But, uh, you know, this is just a minor setback. Uh, I think I'll be back on track by tomorrow. Hey, it's October 23rd, and I have run into my first problem in the narrative with this whole male-female swap. Um, everything was going, actually, pretty good, and I'd swapped out the male and female characters, so Phantom was female, uh, Raul was female, and Christine was male. But then I got to this one part in the story where the Phantom basically kidnaps Christine... He drugs her, he takes her into like an underground lair, which is like this spectacular huge cave with an underground lake and everything. It's a little far-fetched, Gaston LaRue, but I will allow it because it does make for good drama. You know, at least uh, he's thinking dramatically at this point. So I will allow some narrative, you know, playing around if it... Uh, we can stretch verisimilitude as long as it's stretching it towards entertainment. But here's the problem. Uh, the Phantom is supposed to, you know, drag Raul into the lair. Lil' Kim is tiny. Like, apparently the little part of her name isn't just for fun or like a rapper thing. Apparently she's actually quite diminutive. Uh, and the Christine she's supposed to kidnap is Shaquille O'Neal who is enormous. So we have to figure out for a way for Lil' Kim to drug Shaq, which would probably take some kind of horse tranquilizer, and then drag him all the way down to her lair. You know, sometimes I'm going to share a little writery trick with you. Sometimes when I get stuck, I consult my home library. So I think of the problem I have, how am I going to have this tiny person drag this very large person into a layer? And I look at the various books on the shelf and think, how would this book solve that problem? So for this problem, I saw Frankenstein on the shelf and I thought, okay, if a tiny woman had to drag the creature somewhere, I suppose she would like use science and play God in some way. And that would, you know, help her but I don't think the Phantom can really use science. I think that kind of violates the whole point here. I saw Huckleberry Finn on the shelf, and, you know, that book would probably solve the problem by floating Shaq on a raft. That book seems to think that, like, every problem is solved via raft. I don't know what Mark Twain was thinking. It's like, oh, a raft, that'll solve everyone's problems. Anyway, books weren't getting me anywhere, so I switched to my movie shelf, and that's when I got it. Phantasm. If you've never seen Phantasm, near as I can figure, here's what, how it goes. 
It's about a giant alien man who runs a funeral home, and he has a portal to another planet. And what he does is he puts people into canisters, and it turns the people into tiny people who look like Jawas from Star Wars. Then the Jawas he's already made roll the canisters with other people in them into the portal and across the landscape of this other planet towards a tower. And I don't know why he does that, but that's what happens. Oh, also there's a magic pinball that kills people. Anyway, I've decided maybe the Phantom needs to have some kind of minions. You know what I mean? Like Star Wars has Jawas and Ewoks. And uh, there's got to be other non-Star Wars little guys, right? Like Oompa Loompas. Willy Wonka has his, you know, uh, gang of Oompa Loompas. So if Phantom has a bunch of little weirdos like Phantasm, it's explainable that Lil' Kim could get Shaq somewhere. She'll just employ her interdimensional, interplanetary army of Lil' Guys. Lil' Kim, Lil' Guys. I don't know why I didn't come up with this earlier. I could even see, like, the little guys, maybe they'll become popular and there'll be action figures and stuff of them. This could really work out. But yeah, I think the most rational explanation for how to make this work is for Lil' Kim to have an army of little canister men like Phantasm. It only stands to reason. Okay, I have another problem. How many of these tapes start with that phrase, I have a problem? It seems like most of them are starting with this phrase. You know, novelizing that movie The Stuff wasn't nearly this hard, even though that movie was all over the place. And its main appeal was like a sequence where a guy gets his head melted. Which, you know, you can do in a book, but it's not the same. I mean, I guess it was also easier because no one gave a shit about any of the things with the stuff? I mean, I put all kinds of wacky stuff in that stuff novelization. Nobody even mentioned it. It's super weird, because no one mentioned that the book and the movie don't match up at all. Nobody said a thing. I've never heard of anything about it since. It just seems like it barely exists. I thought the stuff was purple, but it's white. And no one has mentioned that glaring error. I mean, I guess nobody read it. Or nobody saw the movie. Actually, it's probably a little bit of both. And you know, if I guess if you did see the movie, uh, you probably got your fill of the stuff. I can't imagine anybody would, you know, if you did one or the other, I think you'd had, you'd seen everything you needed to see and you could uh, kind of dust off your hands and move on from the stuff. Anyway, I have a problem with the songs. So in my book haul from the bookstore, I got a book that includes all the songs and the lyrics from the Broadway show, because I figured I could basically just rip them off. Uh, do you know how many songs are in Phantom of the Opera? 26! That is a lot of songs. I mean, I guess I should have expected something called a musical 
to have a lot of music in it. But that's like twice as many songs as a CD. Like, how are they even going to put that many songs in a movie? There's no way. If every song is like a tight three-minute song, that's already more runtime than the entire movie should have, right? That makes no sense. So I'm going to do these producers a huge favor, and I'm cutting the number of songs down to three. And I figured out a way to do it. Basically, I'll take the songs that are already songs in real life, and we'll use those songs. So we'll just license a song, or, you know, we'll kind of do like a Weird Al parody thing, and we're all set. So, for example, one of the songs I've selected is The Music of the Night. And that's one of the songs from Phantom of the Opera. Which, you know, that sounds almost the same as The Rhythm of the Night. It is the music of the night. Oh, yeah. Dun-dun. The music of the night. Boom. Done. Then, let's see. What do we have here? All I Ask of You. Uh, That sounds just like all that she wants. All I ask of you is another baby. She's gone tomorrow, boy. Boom. Done. Um, what else? I mean, then I guess we have to do the song called Phantom of the Opera. That just makes sense, right? How can we not do Phantom of the Opera, the song, in Phantom of the Opera? So I do need to adapt that one song more thoroughly. Okay, adapting this Phantom of the Hip Hopper song has been difficult, but I think I've got it. I now present to you the Phantom of the Opera, spelled with an F, so it's different, and also it's Hip Hopera. Here we go. Phantom of the Hip Hopera, doing all the rapping, who's fat? Your mama. Phantom. I kidnapped Raul, dragged him underground with the help of these little fools. Phantom. Best MC on the streets and I wear the silly mask so you last longer in the sheets phantom I'm a hot babe but you thought I was a man that theory stinks spray some glade phantom I rock the mic and I don't do drugs they're bomb diggity which I don't like phantom of course that'll sound a lot better coming from Lil Kim I do want to credit the songs to someone other than me because like I don't have a very urban appeal. I think if people think the writer was more in touch with the urban scene, the songs might be a little better received. So I came up with a name, uh, you know, another pen name, but this is a pen name for, for hip-hop. In that Street Fighter game, there's a boxer named Balrog, and I was quite taken with that name because of the Lord of the Rings connection, so Lil Balrog it is. All right, we had another meeting today. We're really getting down to the wire here. It's October 26th. Seems like everyone's at least okay with what I'm doing. Or like okay enough that nobody decided to bring up anything new. Well, except for one thing. 
I am so tired. Uh, there's a new mandate that at some point, Shaq needs to shatter a backboard. I am just about at my end with this stuff. Like, how am I supposed to put basketball into this story? Basketball couldn't possibly have been invented in the Gaston LaRue days, could it? I mean, maybe it was, but it certainly wasn't in France. They were busy having operas and phantoms of those operas. There's just, like, no good way to integrate basketball into the story. I mean, what am I going to do? I, I could do something half-assed and silly, like I could just throw a backboard onto the stage and Shaq does his rap, and then he finishes his rap session by dunking a basketball and shattering the backboard. But, you know, that's such a thing. It seems like a just naked attempt to court favor with the youth. The board was pretty insistent, though. And I do get their point. I mean, what would be the point of having Shaq in your movie if he doesn't do any basketball stuff? It'd be like having Arnold Schwarzenegger in your movie, and the whole time he's wearing, like, a business suit. And he doesn't do anything action-y, right? No, he doesn't take his shirt off ever. Or, like, maybe he's got a really big gut or something. Like Junior, where he's pregnant. Junior. That's another one I lost. Uh, who did that one? Leonore Fleischer did that one. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's, you know, once in a while I can lose out a job, a novelization gig to, like, a legend. And, you know, at that time, she was kind of a legend. Like, she did a great job in her prime, but she's got to be a good 15 years past that when Junior comes around. I mean, Staying Alive is a novelization classic. That is an inspiration to all of us who do novelizations, because, I mean, come on. You took a movie where the music and the dancing is so important, like, that's basically all that movie has. And, you know, to try and turn that into a novel... Uh, what she did with it is just genius. I have nothing, I, you know, I cannot, that's an unassailable, great novelization. But I mean, Junior? Junior was like both beneath her and above her. Because it was beneath her level of prestige. I mean, we're talking about the person who did Rain Man here. But I mean, while it's beneath her prestige, it was above her skill level. I just got to say that. You know, what that... What that novelization really needed was like a young buck who comes along and can really inject some energy into it. Staying Alive needed me, is what it needed. Let's face it, Staying Alive... Let's face it, Junior needed me on it. That's all there is to it. Anyway, fuck it. I'm just going to put a backboard on stage. Shaq will shatter it to finish off his rap. He can say some sort of action movie line like, you know, just like this backboard, my rap is finished. Something like that, but, you know, rhyming. Well, I had to make another research trip to the bookstore. Uh, this time, because I'm looking for reference to the Phantom's Punjab Lasso, which is his weapon of choice. Punjab? Punjab? 
When I got to the bookstore, uh, good news, I didn't see the girl from before, and I felt that was for the best. Um, after our last encounter, you know, I just didn't want to go down that road again. So anyway, I approached someone at the desk, the information desk, and I asked for information regarding this Punjab lasso uh, and its appearance in Phantom of the Opera. And, you know, I explained to the bookstore clerk there what I was doing and rewriting Phantom of the Opera, and he seemed also uninterested. But he did say, you know, even though he didn't find a lot, there was a title that seemed to have a Punjab lasso referenced in its index. So he wrote down the location for me, and I headed up the stairs, and boy was I surprised to find myself uh, surrounded by a bunch of sex books. <laughs> so apparently the only thing that references the Punjab lasso in this whole bookstore was some book about sex techniques that, you know, I would describe as a little out there. So apparently a Punjab lasso is kind of like a silk scarf, triple-folded, and then one end is wrapped around your wrist, and the other has this heavy lead egg in it that's like tied up in the scarf's loose end. So what you do is you throw the scarf around someone's neck, and it wraps around, and then the egg bashes them in the back of the head. Then I guess you go ahead and strangle them, and so on. So you smash them in the head, you strangle them. It seems, I don't know, it sounds, I guess, efficient. I guess is, uh, you know, an exotic weapon of the time. Uh, that would work. So anyway, uh, I decided to purchase the book, you know, but then I was thinking I better get some other books because, like, you don't want to walk up to the register with just this one book of such a sort of odd sexual nature and, you know, arouse suspicion of some kind in whoever's at the register. I don't want anyone to think I'm a freak. So I got some other more vanilla sex stuff. You know, I got a book of Playboy centerfolds, and then I got a book by, there's a glam rock star, D. Snyder, wrote a book meant to educate teens on their changing bodies. Um, I figured this combo, I, I don't know what I was thinking. I just needed something to mask this book about strangulation and sex. And I guess I figured the D. Snyder volume might be more outrageous looking and refocus someone's interest, you know. What is a glam rocker going to say about teen sex education? So then, of course, of course, I'm standing in line. I picked the most bored-looking middle-aged man that I could see. And uh, right when I get to the register, the bookstore girl from before comes up and relieves him so he could take a break. Wonderful, right? Everything's going great. So now I can't decide whether it's worse to say something or say nothing. So I said something. And I guess I, you know, I believe in myself as a wordsmith or something. So I figured saying something would be my strength over not saying something. So I said, I don't know if you remember, but I came in here for some Phantom of the Opera books because, you know, I'm writing, writing a new version to appeal to youths. And she didn't say anything, and she kept scanning the books. So I tried another thing. I said, well, I'm glad we have this wonderful bookstore as a resource. You know, the research I'm doing here helps me a lot. I'm not sure exactly what I said that made her upset, but probably the thing about the youths combined with 
selling me books about weird sex stuff, but also kind of a book about youth sex stuff. But anyway, whatever it was, she put her hand on the telephone and said, that's 4550, and if you say anything else, I'm calling security. And uh, you know what? She was right to feel that way. And uh, whoever her parents are, she was raised right, that one. You're doing a good job. All right, so I've hit I've hit the point of the anti-drug sequence. And uh, I've decided what to do is to say that, you know, drugs have horribly scarred the Phantom's face. That's where, that's why the Phantom has to wear this mask. That seems to make sense, right? I don't know, I don't know much about drugs. So I'm not entirely certain that marijuana can scar your face. I, I Maybe if you use it a lot, I mean, I've only used marijuana three times, and it, you know, all three were by accident. The first one was I was at a concert, and someone passed me a cigarette that did look suspiciously small and suspiciously homemade. But I was there alone, and I sort of wanted to make a friend so we could sing along together arm in arm. That's kind of how I pictured it. So, like, instead of critiquing the cigarette rolling abilities of this person, I'd I just started smoking it, and before I knew what was going on, I was very high. And I did end up making friends with the guy next to me, and we sang every word Phil Collins had for us, and it felt like they were for us, like written just for us. We had a great time. Uh, we still talk on the phone occasionally. The second marijuana experience was at my mother's house. Um... What I thought were Italian herbs, I added pretty liberally to some spaghetti sauce. And uh, it turned out that those Italian herbs were dried marijuana. And uh, my mom kept this with her spices, I guess, so it didn't look suspicious. And she also said it might help mask the scent. I think, unfortunately, the marijuana makes her a little paranoid. Anyway, we ate the spaghetti, and we had a really good talk about my father and how the two of them are still in love even though there's some fundamental things my mother will always wish were different about their relationship. You know, she really emphasized, you know, that love is about accepting people for who they are and not trying to make them who you want them to be. The third marijuana time was probably the strangest one. Um, I was in a laser tag league at the time. And apparently one of the teens on the other team figured out how to use the laser tag arena's fog machine to fill the entire room with marijuana smoke. So the match we ended up having was, you know, kind of lackadaisical. Mostly we laughed and laid on the ground and shot the lasers at the ceiling. We still talk about that one all the time. Come to think of it, I've only had really good times when I've used marijuana. I feel like that goes against what I'm supposed to be putting in this book. I wonder if I could get marijuana for research purposes.
All right. We're we're getting uh we're getting to the good parts now. We've got this big action sequence where Raul and some other guy we haven't seen up till now, the Persian, go underground to rescue Christine from the Phantom. I do not get this the Persian guy. He kind of comes out of nowhere and then explains the Phantom's whole history. And then it's like he cocks a shotgun and he's like, let's do this shit. I don't know why now. I don't know what he's so upset about all of a sudden that he's like, now it's time to kick this Phantom's ass. But, you know, I guess I guess they just need him in there. You know, Gaston was like, we got to do this exposition dump. So he's like, how can I do it? Let's just throw a fucking character in there. Good, Well done. Bravo. I can see why this is a classic. This part is pretty cool at first, though. They go underground. They cross, like, a big lake to get to the lair. Then they're stuck in a torture chamber where the phantom leaves a noose so they could uh, choose to kill themselves instead of being tortured. That is a pretty uh, pretty strong move, and I, I like that. That is staying in. But, you know, like, in the book, Raul is such a milk toast, man. Like, the whole time they're walking through the Phantom's lair, Raul keeps complaining because he's supposed to hold his gun at the ready, and he keeps saying it's making his arm tired. I mean, can you believe that? Like, I feel like, you know, for... 10 minutes I could hold up a gun if I was in a life or death situation and it's like I, a gun is heavy I guess but I mean this is our hero of the story is complaining that a gun is making his arm tired come on but further because our version is gonna have you know this part will be played by a woman how is that gonna look if we're like oh her arm is tired from 10 minutes of holding a gun I, you know, I know it would be more accurate to the original story, but I I just, I think that's going to come off all wrong. All wrong. As it should have in the original. Anyway, um, they're in the torture chamber, and then Christine is with the Phantom. And the way this is all sort of resolved in the book is the Phantom sees Christine crying and realizes that she loves Raoul, and so he lets her go. Because I, I don't I don't know. He's been like a huge asshole up to now. He's such a petty asshole. He crushed a woman with a chandelier. But, you know, for taking another woman's job, who he kind of knew. But I guess this is like the one time he's not a huge asshole. This is like the Grinch, his heart grew 10 sizes that day or whatever. But this is not going to... So obviously the movie cannot be this way. Hip hop bra is not going to go down that way. And there has to be at least one explosion. That's not something the board put on me. That's something that I put as a rule to any of my novelizations. Okay? And every time I do it and bring it to a board, they are into it. And I mean, I got the idea from a classic, by the way. Did you know the original ending of Bram Stoker's Dracula had a huge explosion of Dracula's castle at the end? And then he took it out? Like, what was he thinking? I mean, maybe Bram Stoker had an undiagnosed allergy to interesting things happening in his book. After reading that book, I am prepared to make that diagnosis. Anyway, we're going to change this. So Raoul and the Persian, who I guess will have to be played by some other female rapper, break out of the torture chamber, and then they have a gun battle with Phantom. Very exciting gun battle, right? 
Now, while this is going on, Shaq slash Christine is huddled behind something, like some piece of furniture, which will have to be ridiculously oversized uh, to hide Shaq. But, you know, and then what happens is there was a basketball up on the table, right? A discarded prop. And in the, in the melee, it falls off the table and rolls over to him. So it's next to him on the floor. And if he can just shoot it at a lever on the wall, a giant chandelier shaped like a marijuana leaf will crash down and crush the phantom. So now we've got basketball. We've got our anti-drug message with this marijuana leaf thing. This is perfect. So, you know, Shaq makes the shot. Uh, the marijuana leaf crushes the phantom in a uh, hugely obvious metaphor that even kids will understand. And then uh, little Kim squirts lighter fluid in a trail that says, Au revoir, phantom, and lights it on fire. And it hits the chandelier, which explodes. I don't know why it explodes. You know, we'll explain that it has gas in it or something. But it does. Our heroes flee. The end. All right, Gaston LaRue has one last curse for me because there is a part of the original that I am compelled to include contractually. So in the book, the Phantom lets Christine go and then he dies of love, it says. I'm not even kidding. That's the ending Gaston LaRue put in there. He died because he was so in love. Love kills the Phantom. Um... And that needs to stay in there. That basic part needs to stay in there. So the chandelier will wound him, but he needs to die of love. So I've decided in my version, the phantom will die of a, quote, unnamed sexually transmitted disease. Uh, which is, you know, in my mind, that is a more 90s version of the same thing, right? Dying from love that's in a manner of speaking, that's the same thing. But, you know, the bigger thing is it gives one last message to the kids. Um, and the Phantom writes one last rhyme about, you know, being safe and having safe sex. I learned some things from the D. Snyder book. You know, I thought that was just, I bought it as just a cover-up, but I had another uh, bout with diarrhea thanks to eating a lot of pizza, which I made myself. And as we've discussed, I'm not good at that. Um, and I read the D. Snyder book, and it was surprisingly uh, frank and honest and actually a pretty good resource, in my opinion, for, for young people who are embarking on their sexual journey. He uses a lot better phrases than embarking on their sexual journey. The book is much better than a sex guide for teens that I would write. Uh, mine would be short if it was based on my own experience. And it would be like, well, if you don't have sex as a teen, you basically have no problems. Anyway, the Phantom writes a last, a last couplet that he repeats as he's dying. Be wise like a theologian. When you go to have sex, use a Trojan. 
This could even be a brand tie-in for us. Well, I suppose this will be the final tape for now. Um, it's been about six months since I turned in the final finished manuscript for The Phantom of the hip uh, a novel by me. Um, I suppose I should wrap up these recordings, though, with a sort of animal house, where are they now sort of thing, so that when I go back to try and write my life story, all these memories are still fresh right now. So, makes sense. Um... I, I put in the manuscript. Everything was done. The board did ask me to make a final change, which uh, was to, quote, Tarantino this thing and scramble up the order. I guess referring to the movie Pulp Fiction. And, you know, I took it as an insult because I think that's a way to tell a story that just makes it seem more interesting than it is. Uh, no offense to Mr. Tarantino, but come on. And by this point, I was just so done with the whole thing. So I picked up the stack of pages from the table and I cut it into two piles like a deck of cards. And then I put the bottom part on top and the top part on the bottom. And then I slapped the top and said, they're done. And uh, that was the last, the last meeting I had with the board. So the bad news. Unfortunately, it looks like uh, there won't be a movie. I was excited. Everyone was excited. Uh, Lil' Kim pulled out first. Or, you know, she might have never been interested in the first place. That part's a little unclear, but it seems like her agent agreed to everything. And when he told her about it, she expressed that she had no interest in some, quote, whack-ass opera. Which, you know, could be, you know, I mean, it's kind of a metaphor for the whole thing, right? Who has an interest in Phantom of the Opera? Uh, if she was made to read it in school, I... I understand her feelings completely, and we share those feelings. Lil' Kim and I have a lot in common, to be honest. Uh, Shaq was out next. So apparently nobody discussed with him these basketball tie-ins, and he really strongly objected to those. Uh, he felt it would limit his sort of ability to be taken seriously as a rapper or an actor. Um, I just saw the movie where he was a genie, so I guess, I guess we'll let the world and time be the judge of Shaq's decisions about his seriousness. Uh, Mr. Sanborn left the publisher, I found out. Um, the board told me he was fired because he was a drunk. And Mr. Sanborn left me a drunken answering machine message that said otherwise. But he was drunk on the message, and he thought he was calling someone named Shirley. So those facts lead me to believe I have a detective's mind. And I'm led to believe that the drunkenness story has some, uh, has some likely weight to it. As for me, um, I'm working on a novelization for a movie called The Pest. It's set to come out in uh, sometime in 98. It stars John Leguizamo. I think he's, you know, it's going to be, 
the next Ace Ventura. I really do believe that. Um, the folks in charge of the Pest Manuscript are way less hands-on. And uh, John Leguizamo has already waived his rights to approve the final manuscript. So uh, I'm very much on my own here, which is kind of how I prefer it. Um, I have added several elements to the movie, including a road trip and a, uh, a heist sequence. Um, mostly that's because in the script there are a lot of sections that say things like, John makes a face for several minutes. So I'm getting a lot of chances to flex my sort of creative fill-in-the-gap muscles here. Uh, and what about Phantom? I'm sure you're all wondering about Phantom with an F. I'd love to tell you the book was like in schools, educating kids about the basic story of Phantom of the Opera and all that. And I'd love to even tell you it's in some bookstores and was a minor success. Or that it was in no bookstores and was a failure. But uh, to my knowledge, there is only one copy in existence, and it is in my local bookstore, as far as I know. Here's what happened. So when it was clear it wasn't going to come out, I had the manuscript bound and printed, which I probably wasn't supposed to do. But when I found out they weren't going to release it, I decided to do it myself, just so I could get that good feeling of walking into the bookstore and seeing my book on the shelf. And besides, I kind of felt like, who owns the rights to this? I mean, this is a ripoff of an old-ass book. Who's going to tell me I can't do whatever I want with it? So I put it there like a month ago, and as far as I know, it's still there. <sighs> okay. In an attempt to use Phantom of the Opera to pick up girls one last time, uh, I started going to the bookstore pretty regularly and I would just sort of stand in the aisle where my book was for several hours. And when a pretty girl came by, I would accidentally tip it onto the floor. And then I would sort of smoothly segue into a conversation, you know, like, oh, haha, how clumsy. It's the last copy of my book on the shelf. They must have sold a lot, you know, something like this. So I did this, uh, I saw a girl coming, and uh, to, to be honest... I just, I, all I could tell was it was a girl. And I was a little bleary-eyed uh, because I'd fallen asleep standing up, which is a new skill that I had mastered because I'd been standing in the bookstore aisle so long. So I knocked the book on the floor and start making this conversation. And as she got a little closer and my vision cleared, I realized she was way younger than I thought. And as it turned out, she was the sister of the girl who works at the register, uh, the younger sister of that girl. So now I've officially been trespassed by police and I am not allowed in the store. Some people might see this as an impediment to me, you know, like I'm not in a good place. But I like to see the positive. You know, this is an all-time low for me, which means I can only be on an upward trajectory. Uh, the story of my rise to fame begins here. <laughs> 